Gregory's back. We can begin. Outstanding. All right. This is a uh, this is a great portion, and there's a couple of things in here that uh, refer us back to the apostolic scriptures. Uh, so I'm going to try and uh, help us to to do that. Uh, in the uh, in the opening part of this portion, what, what's 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 happening? I don't need you to read it to me. Just tell me what's what does this portion open with? Thank you, Brock. Brock. <laughs> Well, uh, Pharaoh had let the people go. Good. They were leaving, headed towards the promised land, but God was leading them in a roundabout way so they wouldn't go through the Philistines' territory. Okay, so we're going to take sort of a detour. Dad knows a shortcut. I like that. And, um, and it was for our good. But what happens? Something happened. What happened to Pharaoh? Change changed his heart. He changed his mind. He kind of woke up. He did one of those V8 moments. Whoa! What have I done? I let, let, the slaves go. Go. I let the slaves go. We're going to have to pick. That's corner. exactly right. So, uh, so we end up with a uh, we end up with a confrontation. Now, I would ask you if you can, uh, you can look at your scriptures if you need. Um, but there's a decided difference between what we read this morning and throughout this week and what we see. Uh, Charlton Heston uh, doing. A, boy, what a great job to have. Let me play Moses. Holy cow. Um, I'm, I'm not a holy That's right. Yeah, not a holy <laughs> Pun intended. Pun intended. Okay. Um, He's the one that did that. That's right. No, no holy cow there. So, um, so how would you describe what happens to the people and that whole event by the sea? How did it come to pass? And just step by step, walk me through it. Who wants to do it? We'll, we'll give you a little bit. Yeah. I read something today. I'm trying to remember who wrote it. I read something this week saying that as long as it was a pride issue, and as long as Pharaoh let the people go, he was okay with it. But when they started coming to him saying, the people have fled, then it became oh. an issue because it was no longer, I let them His go. thing. It, they have left. They're leaving. Yes. I got and you. so okay. that's where the change of heart came from. Good, Is good. the difference that the text almost implies that Pharaoh and his army died, whereas the film shows Pharaoh surviving? Yeah, well, Pharaoh's up there, sure. But let's walk through it step by step so that we can see what we got. Greg, start us out. Uh, well, if I could pick up on a comment oh, that please. Janet made. If we recall, M Moshe originally only asked to, be, to, to travel three days, three days in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Have a festival and make sacrifices to Hashem, and then come back. Presumably, presumably to come, come back. back, right? So and, and you got the rub between only you got only the men, right? No, 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 no. We need the women too, and oh, we need the animals too, and all that. Yeah. So, um, so when so Pharaoh finally relents after all the plagues, lets them go, still under this thought that they're going to go for three days, do their deal, and then and come back. And they go for three days, but they keep going. And then the messengers are coming back saying, hey, they're fleeing. They're not going and just, you know, they're now fleeing, right? And in fact, one of the, uh, one, uh, one uh, commentary on why he did not lead them by the, by the way of the land of the Philistines, I always thought that that was because they were afraid of the Philistines. Right. But they there's would, a different they would have war. There's a different take on it though, because 
the, the, the common trade route went along you know the, the northern Sinai and then up into what would now be Gaza, which right. was the ancient homeland of the Philistines. That was the primary trade route. But there's another take that it wasn't because they were afraid to pass through the land of the Philistines. It was because Egypt still basically controlled the trade route. True. And they had garrisons, they had armed garrisons at different points along the route. Hmm. So they were afraid to go the way of the trade route because they they knew the garrisons certainly would, the, the Egyptian garrisons along the way would certainly see them and when they when they figured out they're, le they're actually leaving with no intention of coming back, right. they would attack immediately. So that's a slightly different take than what most of us have probably, have probably thought. Sure. So then God takes them by way of um, the wilderness. So when we arrive now where, where, where the portion picks up and we're at the edge of the Yam Suf, we have now been traveling six days. We arrive at the edge of the sea on, on on the, uh, at the end of six days, um, <clears throat> and then, you know, Pharaoh pursues. Um, he 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 arrives. The people see. Well, the people see him coming from the distance. The people start to panic, um, and uh, and then God says, you know, look, what why are you whining about? What do you? Well, it's interesting. It's actually interesting. I think. Um, uh, where, let's see, where is it? Well, while you, while you find that, <laughs> let, me, let me back up half a sentence in his chronology. And let's recognize that if you're watching this from the bird's eye view, you know, you've got the, the, the Black Hawk up in the air and watching, they are leaving, and God says, okay, just do the button hook and come right back so that you're between the rock and a hard place, right? He actually positions them. They go past and come back to position themselves militarily in the worst possible place. Does everybody get that? They, they could have kept going. They didn't. God brings them back around as if he's turning them like a big chessboard to say, okay, bring it on, Pharaoh. Any idea what... Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say that... Um, I'm coming back to that type of situation, I think, is uh, something that a lot of people struggle with when they, if you believe in a sovereign God, mm -hmm. when difficulties have happened in your life. I remember when I was looking for a job for months and months and months on end, and it's like, I have all these skills and qualifications, I have a degree, I have job experience. You have no, everything but a job. Everything but a job. It's <laughs> like, well, why, I keep, you know, everything made sense, like I should get one, and it seemed illogical to not get one, so that the, the answer was almost like, well, God's intentionally withholding a job for me. And it's like, well, that what God does that? And this passage is actually a real encouragement because it's the idea that, yeah, God does do things sometimes on purpose that don't make any sense to us at all. They seem amazingly stupid. And at times actually put us in a great difficulty. And, yeah. But the reality is that he always has a perfect plan for it. And his ultimate goal and, his, and the end result is always going to be so much more infinitely better than we could have possibly come up with on our own. It not only make it worth it, it far exceeds whatever suffering we went through along the way. Amen. And as we see here, oftentimes it brings him much greater glory exactly. than otherwise. But of course, we're not in the black hole. Oh. I got you, then you, then you. Yes, sir. One thing question I had a little bit different is: Was do we know any timing of the button hook? Why Six could days. they have 
Well, the total, or was it six it was in, days? It was right. Booked? It was right at the end of that six, of that six days. So it could have been they're, like they're three set. days out, and they button hooked, and they thought they were coming back. Now the oh, now that's interesting. I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. One, one idea on that was they were going to travel three days, worship a day, travel back three days. So Pharaoh expected them to be gone a total of seven days. Okay. Now they've traveled three days. Traveled. Another for three days, and we're now standing at the edge of the Yamsuf, at the edge of the sea. So, so it's right at the end of this period that he kind of turns them around okay. and settles them. Yes, sir. The, you know, I think that I think that a lot of people who are, you know, Ben believes a long time really don't have a difficulty with understanding that God is in direct control of their of things going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. Our difficulty is in how we're, respond, how we're supposed to respond to that. And Joshua's example says, should he be harder getting a job? Or maybe he should not do anything like God and have all the glory. And so we have or, this... Or, or maybe he should berate himself because he must have sin in his exactly. life and God's you know, and when you think about You think about sometimes difficulty comes into our lives through illness. You know, what do we do? Do we trust God to get well or do we go to a doctor? You know, those... And, and knowing, knowing the answer to that question is neither side of that equation is distrusting God. They recognize God's in charge, but they also recognize God expects certain uh, responses from us, and determining that response is the difficulty for us. Amen. And I would also add that God frequently uses agents to affect his will in our lives. So should Israel, when they got turned around, have taken out their swords and fought? That's a good choice. It's a very good choice. Maybe that's what God wanted. Because it goes out of its way a couple of times to say that they were armed when they left that's Egypt. Right. Well, but that, that's where I got why Moses stands up and says, Stand still and see the salvation. That's different. That was Charles Now Pastor. we know. That was Charles <laughs> See, when he does that, now they know what God expects them to do. Right. But until then, they don't know what God expects them Real to do. His will. Exactly. Everybody stole what I was going to say. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> All right, you we did it first. <laughs> That's good. It's a quick question about this. Absolutely. Um, Don't forget. I. I'm coming back. As you just mentioned, that Pharaoh thinks they're going for three days, and I wasn't sure. I, I think that I've heard um, that that was their original plan, but it, it almost does seem like a trick that they would say we're leaving for three days, and you know they they run away. That almost seems deceitful. And I thought I had heard that um, that's what it started as, and then after the tenth plague, Pharaoh Kicked says them to them, get, "Get out! I never want to see you again. Right. Yeah. Leave." And in fact, and so, in the day you see my face, you, you shall surely die. And that, that is the permission that's to leave close. and not come back at all. So I wouldn't have thought that he I'm was expecting them back. Yeah, I like like Greg was saying. I think um, it's two different perspectives, and, and certainly a perspective we may not have heard through the church, um, but clearly. Something caused Pharaoh to go, what have I done? Mm -hmm. I'm not doing this. And out he goes. Okay. Yes, ma'am. In verse 3 where it says, Pharaoh will say, they're bewildered by the land, the wilderness has closed them in. It almost seems to indicate... They made a mistake. God's setting them up. I mean, God says, okay, I'm going to bring you around here so that Pharaoh looks at you and has this thought. Sitting ducks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is easy. Yeah, and it's exactly right. God did put them in a position yeah. militarily that was ridiculous. And it, I, I, to your point, I think he did deliberately like, make it look like... It's like Lord Wellington. I can <laughs> Come on, Napoleon. Yeah. We're weak and bring, bring it on. Bring it on. Yes, sir. Back to you. 
So, <laughs> uh, back, back, backing up a she's little bit, uh, she's verse 20, chapter 13, they journeyed, uh, or, uh, yeah, they journeyed from Sukkot, because we learned at the end of the last Parsha that they went from Ramses to Sukkot. Right. So, to get Joseph. To, to, get, to yeah. get Joseph to pick up the bones, right? Yeah. But there is, um, there's, 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 a, I think, a deeper understanding here because who else uh, went to Sukkot? Jacob. Jacob. Jacob, right? When did he go to Sukkot? When he got there. When, when he, he entered where? the land. When he entered the land. So what we have here is a is a uh, pattern. When we when we leave exile, our first stop is always Sukkot. Sukkot. I, I remember somebody writing a book called "By Way of Sukkot." I haven't read that in a long time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so we can't overlook that because that's teaching us something. That because again, this whole story is a is a picture and a prototype, right? So, when God's people leave exile, right, come out of exile, their first stop is Sukkot. The fact that they pick up the bones of Yosef, right. Um, is also, I think, an interesting picture. Yosef, of course, being a picture of Messiah. Right. So, and Sukkot is all about um, God tabernacling Dwelling. with his yeah. people, right? So that, I think, is an interesting picture. We, we have just left Galut. We've left Egypt, our first stop is Sukkot. When Yaakov crossed over, uh, across the, the, the river there and came into the land, he meets the whole thing with Esau, but his next step is Sukkot. Yeah, and in right. fact, goes out of its way to tell us that because Esau wasn't going there. Right. He said, "I'm, I'm right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go slow. I'll be right behind you." So, so that's that's a I think an interesting detail. Two now, different Sukkots, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The, the, what it's trying the to teach us yeah, is exactly. the same, right? Um, Two different places. The the other thing too, when when it says that they went up, uh, depending on your translation. Uh, yeah, the the article says that they they went up uh, armed, um, and um, it's interesting the the Hebrew word that is translated there is the um, the Okay, um, for those of you who know Hebrew, the Hebrew word for five is hamash, right? Just like we have a humash, right? For, so, it, the word they translate for for war is the hamush, and there's a lot of discussion about what is that really saying. Um, the, some say that it's 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 indicating that they that they went out in uh, arrayed in groups of fifty as if soldiers, right? They're in like troops. And that's why we get there. That's one reason why we get this idea that they must have been arrayed for battle. In fact, I think there's one English translation that mm -hmm. says in military array. I think it's, I know, it's national, uh, New, New American, I think it's New American Standard. Anyway, um, but we also, there's also an understanding from Chazal that because of this word, the Hamoshim, that only one fifth of no, the aren't. people went out. Oh, okay. So we've heard that we've heard it. You know, you've probably heard it said that only one out of every five is, is Israelites actually left, left Egypt. Egypt. Where do they get that? Mm -hmm. 
from the Hebrew here, vehamushim, mm -hmm. uh, because it's a it's a play on that word five cool. or fifty. So, so it's, it's not firearms with five five round magazines. That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh no no no! I just I sit there with my hand like this. So, you know, if you're going to be in the silent auction, you you can't bid. Okay. <laughs> Jeremiah, say in. Backing up just a little bit, I, I thought my mom said about the uh, why uh, they went out, you know, Pharaoh's pride, that was an interesting thought, and Or, ha or Hachaim kind of plays off that a little bit, says that um, when they went out of Egypt, um, he actually says that he thinks that Pharaoh actually helped protect them and escort them as they go out, like a good host, mm. you know, leads his guests out, and Pharaoh's thinking... Despite all this, I'm the better man, because in the end, you know, I, I led them out still. And he's all prideful of that. And God goes, no, this is not you that did this. This is me that did this. And so because of that, he led them a different route so as to make what Pharaoh did ineffective. Mm -hmm. It was like, you didn't lead them out the right direction. You were leading them in the wrong direction. I had another path. So that's, that's an interesting cool. idea. That's cool. An interesting thought. Yes, sir. Um, I'm playing with some of the dates here. It's kind of intriguing. Is um, There's a six-day gap, and so essentially there are seven days... Uh, events that take place with the young, splitting of the Yamsuf coming on sort of the seventh day, as in a way. And um, it's cool because Laban, the same thing happens. They told Pharaoh, we want to go three days, and then Pharaoh goes out and they catch them on the seventh day. Laban, it says specifically that jo Jacob and his children, when they leave, they have like a three day head start. Right, right. And then. Um, and then the third day, Laban's told that he catches them on the seventh day. And it's really interesting because in the uh, Hebrew... No, I, the Hebrew, I never noticed. We, That's the good. the That's Hebrew good. is exactly the same in the way that they find out. It says in Exodus chapter 14, it was told to the king of Egypt. And the Hebrew there is um, the Yagid. Uh, literally, yeah, it's told. Um, like Haggadah. Like Haggadah, a telling. Right, right, a telling. The exact same word is used for Laban. It was told to Laban. Mm. It's almost, I mean, it's actually kind of bizarre. It's almost like, who told them? It's almost like kind of like God set them up somehow um, for this kind of event. Um, but it's interesting because it was also, this is kind of a little side thing that's kind of cool, is that the Haggadah plays a little bit off of this to a degree because the Haggadah for Pesach actually says an Aramean tried to destroy my father. And traditionally the Aramean is there. So it's like God is drawing almost like, there's almost like these, these Hebrew words and concepts, these dates, are almost like drawing this parallel between the spiritual assailant of Laban, who mm -hmm. tries to get Jacob to swear on the god of you know his father, right. and then the physical assailant of Pharaoh, and there is this parallel between these, um, you know, these enemies of God in mm -hmm. a sense, and how they chase the people. And, I, and going back to what you had to say, I think it's a very good point. Oftentimes, when God rescues us, it doesn't end. It's not like, oh, great, it's all finished, and now everything's good. It's, it's sometimes that it's like it's just a precursor to something bigger, and it's going to happen in a minute, and it's like in a oh, week. You know, it's kind of like, you know, 19, yeah, in a week. It's going right. Wait a week. What's like, you know, 1940, yeah, 1948, the says, okay, y'all can have a land. Y'all can be, y'all can have a country again. And then, uh, you know, within the, you know, the next six months, Israel declares independence. Everything's, everyone's celebrating. And then five Arab armies marshal at the borders to wipe everybody out. Yeah. So, you know, God's going to keep the glory. Sometimes it's going to be. happens to the children. That's right. It's a good problem. Hang on. Yes, sir. I just had a quick note on Mr. Upham's point about being armed. <laughs> Since uh, this one guy, this is an older Rush, but this one guy had commented that they think it's from the word Chams, from uh, the Egyptian meaning lance. 
uh, that they were armed with lances. Interesting. <laughs> I wonder if that's the same as Hamas. Uh, awesome. <laughs> they were swearing. Hamas. <laughs> 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 well, that would work well against. I'm not sure how well that would have worked as chariots. <laughs> but it does make a little sense, seeing as they apparently had a, a bunch of long poles yeah, later on. Very long. That's my thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. But did I miss anybody in this? Okay, that's good. So just to pick up on the tiny thing again that Joshua was, was speaking to, we leave uh, we leave Egypt, we leave Ramses on what day? 15th. I hope it's the 15th of Nisan. Right? Um, and we arrive at the edge of the sea on the, six days later, and then as we read the account, there's this kind of standoff through the night, and God splits the sea, and on the seventh day, we go in and we and we go into the midst of the sea through, on dry, through the water, dry land. The last right? day of Tetzal. So we went into the sea and came up on the seventh day, right? So that this is obviously a significant event in our history, which is why when we get to Leviticus and we're laying down the uh, commandments for the festivals, and we have the festival for Pesach to commemorate the event, why do we have two Yom Tovs, one on the first day and one on the seventh day, is corresponding with the day we left and the day that we came Finally. into the sea and came up, as it were, a free nation. That's when we had our freedom at that point because our our, our, our enemy, enemy has been defeated. Has been defeated. So the timing is, is definitely... And then we ran out of dough. <laughs> <laughs> we ran out of dough, yeah. So I, I just want to make sure that nobody missed the standoff because that's, that's an important part of that sequence that God puts them in a precarious position deliberately and draws the army in, draws the enemy closer. And as the enemy draws closer, they are stopped. And I think the movie does a pretty good job of it. Right? You've either got the flaming fire thing or you've got the pillar of uh, cloud. You know? So all night long, they can't, uh, they can't do anything. Um, now, where'd the movie mess up with the re with regard to the splitting of the sea? It was instantaneous, wasn't it? It looked like it was right away. Right, and it was Stand up. back and see the hand of God. So Which, if you've got your, your thing on. Back. Right. That's right. It, it, it comes back. Overnight, the wind came. Yes. It got windier and windier and windier, and it blows the water away, evidently. I was just thinking about how interesting it is that at first it seems like so they go out and the servants are like whoa all of our the people that were doing everything for us That's are gone true. but it's interesting that well they they're actually afraid because they they think the egyptians are going to kill them now not just like enslave them again That's right. and it's it's just that reminded me sort of of how it seemed like the holocaust went where it was like at first, we just want to control Israel, but then that's not good enough. Then it always gets to this point where it's like, no, we, we have to wipe them out. And that's exactly what happened here. At first, it was, we want to control them, and now it, they're, they're coming with all of their chariots and their entire army after them. Exactly right. All right, so. Last two. 
Wait, Gotta we in the first paragraph, guys? Come on, this is one of the longest portions. I'm about to ask if there's any other comments on that, otherwise I want to keep moving through this story. I wanted to make a comment about what happened when they saw uh, the Egyptians coming. Is this now appropriate time? I think it's a great time. Great segue. Because I'll make some interesting comments about everything. Um, Moses, his reply to the, when the uh, people say, oh no, Egypt's coming. And Moses' reply, he says, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see God's salvation. <coughs> for you today. You may see the Egyptians today, but you never see them again. God will fight for you, but you must remain silent. Because all said, okay, he says a lot of different things here that all kind of seem similar. Why is he saying all these different things? And he said, oh, it's because the people of Israel spread into four different segments, and they said four different things. There's one group that said, Oh no, the Egyptians are coming. Let's plunge into the sea, preferring to drown themselves and return to Egypt. Good answer. Another camp said... Swimming with those long poles. <laughs> <laughs> so another camp said, let's return to Egypt, willing to accept the yoke of bondage again. The third camp said, let's wage war against them, hoping that they would be victorious. Good answer. The fourth camp said, let's cry out to God, appealing to God in prayer. Okay. And so Moses, when they say all these different things, God says, you know, look, I'm going to protect you. You just need to trust me. And so Moses says, okay, well, I'm going to address all these different camps then. And so he says, um, stand firm and see God's salvation for you today. See, it was addressed to those who wish to throw themselves in the sea. You may be seeing the Egyptians today, but you will never see them again. It was addressed to those who wish to return to Egypt. God will fight for you. It was addressed to those who suggested war. You must remain silent. It was addressed to those who wanted to pray. So what was the proper course of action? God told Moshe, speak to the children of Israel and tell them to travel, to, i.e. to trust in God and proceed further in the path leading to Mount Sinai. So anyway, I found that pretty cool. Which is yeah, very cool. And that makes sense because if you look at other places in the Psalms, for example, where um, different accounts can be like schizophrenic because some say like, and they rebelled at the sea. Other times they, and they trusted the Lord and right. they took faith in Moses' as servant. So it's, so I think there, that is yeah. kind of... Uh, Which is it? Right. Yes. The right answer. They, they were the, all these things. And... It's that way in families too. Yeah. Every one of those answers, by the way, I think was a, was you know maybe not going into under bondage, but that's the that's what I was kind of Legit. talking about. God's sovereign is like, but what does He expect me to do? You know, I mean, you know, does He expect me to not do anything, or does He expect me to fight and do something? You know, I mean, both are both both good answers. You bet. You bet. So in verse nineteen, you know, the Malach Almai, the angel of the Lord, you know. Uh, who had been going in front of the camp moves behind and kind of stands between. Uh, and so obviously the discussion, well, what, what, who is this Malachi man? There's one opinion from Hazal. They, they connect it to uh, Daniel chapter 12, I think it was, uh, where Michael, you know, was described as, you know, Angel. fighting on behalf of the people, right, and shows up to Daniel and... So Michael is is uh, they they associate with this is Michael who is the defender of Israel, if you will. Um, um, it's not twelve. It's nine. Huh? No, it's twelve. Is it twelve? Yeah, it's twelve. But then, of course, there's Daniel seven that talks about um, man, talks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds, wow. right? In the clouds, but Yeshua. Quotes Daniel seven right. referring to himself. Right. So there's the also days. there's some, some interesting uh, there's some interesting connection there. One one uh, teaching from the Baal Shem Tov was that 
at at this point in time when when we go into the we're about to go into the sea that the entire people had a revelation of God that even some of the prophets came, that came after them later never had that there was something so profound about this that they all had a revelation of God and according, and, and according to one of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, the revelation was specifically of Messiah yeah. mm-hmm. which is how Baal Shem Tov instituted the tradition of Seidat Mashiach on the seventh day of Passover to hearken back to this this uh, revelation of Messiah and the Malach Adonai and, and the great deliverance. Kind of interesting. And the Mormons ran with that and made, <laughs> made Jesus and Michael the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, All right, so the uh, they start across. Nachshon. <laughs> if, uh, if you have ever marched any troops, you know that it is a major, unbelievably large accordion you start walking the people you know right you start marching the people and the guys at the back are just standing there because you know we haven't started moving yet it's usually just their information right and then all of a sudden the guys in front of you finally move and whoa you know and now they're trying to catch up just to kind of get it going you can't stop them very easily that way either because like the keystone cops my point in all this is if you look at the number of people we're talking about, you have any idea how long it would take to get across that? I don't care how big the river is. How long that would take? It wasn't like three minutes. It, it wasn't one of these 30 seconds. Everybody across the river, you know? And before the next commercial, they're all standing on the other side. <laughs> no, it's not like that. You know, it's like, okay, somebody grab the bones. Get, get, get the bones. Get you know, there's a long time getting everyone across. And you know what happens when you bring a big crowd of people into a room, sort of in, in a gaggle? What do they do? First people that come into the room stop at the door. <laughs> and they look around, trying to figure out where they're supposed to go. <laughs> and anybody behind them doesn't know, right? Can't you see the same thing happening on the other side of the water? They finally get across, and, they, and they're like, wow, look at this. We're in a different country. And boom, boom, boom. Because everybody's trying to come through the water. Can you see that? You need to feel this story. Because it's only after they started going in and started coming out that the Egyptians, who seem to be watching through this cloud or this fire deal, it disappears. See, I just don't understand that. They just lived through ten plagues. Okay, so they know, if Pharaoh is refusing to look at they know how powerful God is. There's this supernatural cloud fire thing blocking their way. Then it moves or it disappears or what have you. And they decide, let's go. Now come on, come on. You can't you can't ding the Egyptians unless you ding the Israelites. No. Here's the Israelites. Oh my goodness, look at all these soldiers coming. That's true. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Wait a minute. The angel of the Lord just went through and That's killed all the firstborn. However, I'm just saying, here are all these Egyptians in their chariots deciding to go into the sea. 
God did with its walls of water. Yeah. Well, thinking for they some reason yeah. like, oh, God loves us too. We're gonna pray for you. God just killed on the children. We'll go fast. <laughs> I got Hold several, your breath. I got several hands here. Before I do, how many of you, if you were walking through the sea on dry land and you got walls of water on either side, how many of you would want to stick your finger in that water? <laughs> <laughs> right? I was like, is it moving? Is it staying? My whole hand. Wow. Jello. Right? Jello. Is it like jello or do we have some kind of force field going here and we're like in an aquarium and we're the inside? There's signs. Right? They're just swimming looking at him. I love it. Fish like came out. Or try to jump across. Alright, All right, you were next. Okay. Then then uh, then you, then you, then you. Well, I mean if we look at the context for the Egyptians, like this is the Egyptian army, right? Yes. And they're all in their chariots. So top these top are the two. top guys. But remember this we also you just had the plague with all the firstborn everybody in that army probably lost somebody. So they weren't really in the right there, mind. There wasn't a house in it that was untouched. Right. Exactly. And then um, So they're ticked. So they're ticked. But then also it, it says earlier that you know God God strengthened strengthened the heart of Pharaoh. So he was probably out the front lines, you know, you know, very enthused to go into the no matter how I mean obviously I would never, you know, gallop into a, the sea. But there were there must have been some logic they were thinking because okay, we can see the Israelites on the edge. Surely God will drop the waters and they're still in, in right. the sea. That's the key. They weren't all the way out yet, and they're like Let's get in there before they get out. And they really like that's a that's a brilliant military maneuver if you think about it. <coughs> aside from the fact that it may be amazingly stupid. I know. But also like the the chariots of the Egyptians, the chariots with the Egyptians like the Roman soldiers had their shields. It was like their thing how they conquered so much back when they were superpower was their chariots. So they had a lot of faith in their chariots. Mm -hmm. So they're like, we can make it to the other side before they get out. Sure, yeah, easy, absolutely. Easy. I, I think there's no logic whatsoever. I think God, as it says, hardened Pharaoh's heart again to go to pursue them. Mm -hmm. So okay. I don't think he really necessarily had a choice in that. And with, when, when you've had a nation that's after 10 plagues and after the destruction of their of their families, the, I mean, the filling their hearts with hate towards the mm -hmm. Israelites, mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't take uh, someone who's, who's engulfed in anger to just do something irrational. Regardless. If it's only intent, this focus is just to kill this a person he has vengeance for, then they'll do whatever. So I, I don't think there's much logic at all. I, I can't deny that. Um, I think we could go either way here on whether it was a great military maneuver to try and get through before they got out. But still, we have the fact that the, the heart was hardened. By the way, um, I may be out of sync with everyone else on this whole death of the firstborn, but it's my understanding and belief that if you've got a household that has kids, you're safe. You're not going to die but your firstborn will. But if you don't have kids, and you are a firstborn, you're going to be paddling your own canoe there. Actually, your wife will be paddling. No, unless she happens to be firstborn. Do you think women die too, or just men? No. Just men? You're going for the women? Yeah. Okay. Oh. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> Because <laughs> anyway, um, you, you have to wonder, did Pharaoh lose his son? <coughs> yes. yes. But Pharaoh okay. But Pharaoh didn't die. Well, maybe he was third born. Yeah, maybe. Well, maybe not. third borns are Pharaoh's too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, go. <laughs> so something that, that I hadn't seen before until this year, 
um, in verse 16, God speaking to Moses says, Lift up your staff, stretch out your arm, and the sea and split it, and the children of Israel shall come into the midst of the sea on dry land. Yes. Okay? Then that phrase gets repeated again in verse 22. The children of Israel came in, came within the sea on dry land. Yes. All right? Now, um, I, w- what occurred to me is there's, a, there's another element to the miracle. Not only is it a miracle, actually, the water parted, okay? But let's think about this. Yeah, if, if, if the water parts and you now have, you have seabed there, and the seabed has been covered with water since the beginning of creation, or, you know, right? We have a word for this. It's called mud. It's called mud <laughs> and marsh and bog. Yes. Okay? Now, to your point, we have... Uh, we have 600,000 men plus women and children and livestock. Even on dry land, they're going to get some messy mud going. Okay. Mm. But the fact that it uses, it goes out of the way to specifically say on dry land, mm. when you juxtapose that to when the, when the Egyptians go in, it says, Jerry Wheel? It says, um, uh, verse 23, he to pursue them, came after them, every horse of Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen into the midst of the sea. There's no mention of dry land there. Yeah. Okay. So one thing that jumped out at me this year is, ah, there's, there's another layer to the miracle here. The water parts. God dries the land literally so they can get across. Because think about it. If they have carts or any kind of wagons, mm-hmm. if, if that's bog or marsh or mud, yeah. That ain't happening. That's just not going to work. That's right. He dries the land, allowing them to cross it. You know, not, yeah. in addition to parting the water. But when when Pharaoh and his chariots go in, now there's they just went into the midst of the sea. Yeah. There is no more dry land. So I'm just envisioning. You know, you kind of put yourself in the story. Yeah. There's a dust cloud as they're coming up on the other side. But as soon as Pharaoh and his armies get in there. They're just they're they're in knee deep mud and yeah, exactly. marsh and all kinds here's, of stuff. Here's how I have perceived it in my mind, because I you know, you know mm-hmm. I, I like to try and live it and, and be there. I think of the top of the water, because that's what the people were looking at. And then I think about the bottom of the water, which is the top of the dirt, and then I think below the bottom of the dirt. He blew a strong wind all night long. And it not only blew back the water on the top, but blew back the water under the earth. So when the chariots start to go in, the water at the bottom, which was last out, is first in. And that water is actually under the dirt. It comes in, and now you've got a bunch of mud, and the water comes in. So they're actually going into, literally... They're going into the water that they may not even be able to see yet because it's under the dirt. Right. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It almost seems like that was necessary, though, because just because we understand the people were so slow, you know, with the children and the animals and everything, yeah. and chariots are so fast, fast. Yeah. that I, I think, I really think they, they would have po- probably overtaken the people if they could have just one long, dry path just sped down it. You bet. They would have been at the other one side of the minute. <laughs> well, we always think that way, but it could have had like a little deal there. So as soon as they went around the first bend, they can't see him anymore. That, that, that's, that's clever. <laughs> 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 
right. um, I, I want to make one comment on the on the chariots, but I'll go after you and after you. So go. I, that's what I was going to say. Brock actually said exactly what I was going to say about the chariots. But the cool thing is that it it, bas- it seems that the scripture supports that when the the first time that they even consider that oh wow God's actually fighting for them is after their chariots are all messed up. And that's when it's, they say, like, well, let us flee from the face of God. And, 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 what, and what I was going to bring up is they were on the retreat when God killed them. They're no longer pursuing his children. They are on the retreat. They have given up, and they realize they're fighting against the hand of God, and they are leaving. They are retreating, and God kills them. I love my God. Yes. Uh, there's a uh, uh, whoever wrote the book of Enoch. There's a commentary on this passage, drawing the parallels between Jonah and Korah and this passage, and showing that the going through in the deep mm. is the is the English word that we use. Right. That the 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 meaning is the sheol, the, <coughs> the depths of the place of of the dead. Right. That's that's why the uh, the disciples got so terrified on the Sea of Galilee. Exactly. Because that's the, the place of the dead. That's and, right. and in 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 uh, Enoch, it's it's Jonah in the belly of the whale or in the belly of the fish, and he sees he sees Korah in the in the de- in the ah. depths. But this descent unto dry land is is the the uh, the the miraculous descent into Sheol without a without uh, having the effects of Sheol mm. as it's being in the mm. depths, uh, as Korok has but can't escape. Mm. Very interesting. Cool. I like that. Yes. Um, and going back to your comment about um, they are retreating when mm-hmm. God wiped them out, mm-hmm. um, Rabbi Gampel had a really cool comment here. He says that the, 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 the God's um, wiping out of the army of Egypt at the Red Sea was the clearest picture of God's justice in like all of history, and mm-hmm. that we really won't see this again until the end when God judges the world. Mm-hmm. The um, I mean, at the very surface level, it's obvious because you think about it, they tried to throw the, the children of Israel's you know some baby boys into the into the sea mm-hmm. and the river, the Nile, and so now God's going to wipe out the army in in a, a body of water. So there's obviously <coughs> a line there. But Jeremy Gimpel says that he stretches it out further than that. He talks about that traditionally it's believed that. The, the exactly what the Egyptians did is done to them. So like the, the children of Israel are kind of turn around. They kind of turn around and they see what's happening. And it's like, oh, that guy. He when he was a slave master, he broke some Israeli's arm, and now he's getting tossed around the sea. His arm broke. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. it's exactly measure for measure what one person did is being oh, done cool to them. And so you think about the idea that they were retreating. It isn't that God was being. Um, uh, you know, capricious. Capricious, or, or wiping out um, people who were trying to change their mind. You know, oh, oh, you crossed the line too late. But it was more the fact, the idea that God was actually um, enacting the greatest form of justice. Because ultimately, yeah, there is a line where it's too late. That's right. That's exactly right. Can I do a real quick parallel? Please. I just can't help when I read all this thing about Joshua as they came into the land. Not that Joshua. Yeah, oh. this my, not my Joshua. Our Joshua. But when they came into the land, as soon as the priests feet, yeah. it, it was dry right. for them to cross over the Jordan. And as soon as the priests feet left, it was dry to cross over Jordan. And he tells them at the end, 
It says, um, it spoke to the Israel saying, just as when Israel crossed over, the, crossed over this Jordan on dry land, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan, as he did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us when we crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that he is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Which really is the bottom line to this whole story, right? Yeah. The fact that God is demonstrating that he is, in fact, God. He is the one who brings ultimate justice. He is the one who protects his people. You know, we can go on and on with what's happening. We're staying. I know. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I'll be at their house tonight. That's right. Oh. Okay. He's got a comment, sir. Mr. Please. Um, so, with the, with the crossing of the Red Sea, there's another, uh, there's another parallel, and that is it can, it can be parallel to the concept of mikvah, right? Yeah. Which is um, <clears throat> we went down in to the uh, sea as slaves we came up as free men like it's changing status uh, I'm sorry immersion immersion yes mm -hmm. Yeshua went into the grave as as uh, a mere teacher and arose as king mm -hmm. right and we have actually a, a cool drosh on this portion by Rav Shaul 1st Corinthians chapter 10 for brothers I don't want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers all of them were guided by the pillar of cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and with the sea, they all immersed themselves into Moshe. Also, they all ate the same food from the spirit, referring to the manna, quail. And they all drank the same drink from the spirit, for they drank from a spirit-sent rock, which followed them, and the rock was Moshiach. So, you know, Paul is giving a, a drosh on this actual event, and he describes the fact that, we, that our fathers all passed through the sea. He, he describes it as a mikvah, in this case being mikvah into Moshe, and then he picks up on this idea in other places uh, where he connects that concept to Messiah, where we are to be immersed into Messiah Yeshua, yeah. it's the same same idea. So I was good. I was going to bring that one up when we got to sixteen. There, they believed, they believed I was thinking it. about that actually earlier when you were we talking about it the first time. But the three days out, they just mm. come back. They went another three days. So that was six days. And the seventh day, is there any significance that it might have been a Shabbat where they went out six days and then immersed and came out on the seventh day? Mm. It, well, it was a it was a Yom Tov Shabbat, yeah. Well, whether it was it becomes a Yom Tov Shabbat commemorate the event, okay. right. but whether it was a weekly Shabbat, probably not. Actually, I, I would I would infer probably not. Especially actually, after we actually we need to we need to go get uh, Seder Olam and look at the date. But you said it was a Yom Tov. Seder Olam has the date. Yeah, because Pesach is a seven day feast, and the, it's a Shabbat at the front and a Shabbat at the back. Okay. So, good, good, good. Yeah, I'm, we're going to talk about that again because uh, we'll quote from the Milkilta, uh, which is where Paul is, is coming from in 1 Corinthians 10. Except the Milkilta postdates him. That's pretty interesting. Isn't exactly. It? So, you know, you got to wonder who, who gave. Who yeah, they gave probably it? had the same original story. And, exactly. Yeah. But the story obviously was known before we get it penned in the Milkilta. Um, and and the, the, the focus there, of course, is, is the mikvah and the rock. And Paul goes off on the rock as well. All right. 
because we're finishing up the seed. Here. There's no such thing as real quick. Come on. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, uh, noticing that God tells Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea and split the sea and the rod. It's amazing if you look at this pattern of the commandments, or the commandments, the plagues, that at first, God, Aaron, Moses is all nervous, and God says, okay, don't worry about it. Tell Aaron, yeah, Aaron, Aaron will do this for you, and I'll, you just tell him what to do, and Aaron will do it. And repeatedly, he says, tell Aaron, raise his staff. Tell Aaron to do this. Tell Aaron to do this. And then somewhere in the middle of the plagues, God's like, you do this. Your hand. Your hand. And then after that, we see Moses. And it's such a cool example. And I think this is an important lesson as parents that people can learn as well. The idea that sometimes when you, when you have someone who's resistant, who doesn't feel like they're capable of something, you have to kind of, kind of put on some training wheels, give them some opportunities. And then, but eventually, you have to actually kind of nudge them out there. And then having built their confidence, it just continues to grow. And so we see, like Moses in Exodus chapter 3, oh, no, no, I can't talk to these people, to Moses later, and he's like, you know, throwing the, the golden calf down and turning it all into powder right, and making everybody drink it. You know, it's like, it's this totally different, it. just to <laughs> totally different person. And it's so cool to see how God worked in his life. And I think he does the same thing for us. You know, we have issues, we have problems, so sometimes God has to kind of, you know, gently nudge us and prepare us, and eventually it's kind of like, Get out there a little bit, and then it, he, he enables us to do Amen. I, um, I actually had to sprint for half a block when I taught your wife how to ride a bicycle. <laughs> holding the back of the seat, and then I just kept sprinting, and I wasn't even holding on anymore. And she's like, are you, are you still holding? No. What? <laughs> and I just kept running. You got it. That was just yesterday. <laughs> it seems that way, I'll tell you. My goodness. Okay. Man, I hate these tiny little glasses. They fall off. Okay, so we're moving on now. We've got the song. What a glorious song. It what is a glorious song. song. There's, there's something about the song that I need to mention. Um, verse 11, 15 and 11. Right? We say that he was like you. He was like you, right? We say that in our in our in our um, uh, prayers. Um, what's interesting is, you know, this is who is like you, Hashem. Uh, who is like you, mighty and holiness, holiness, too awesome for praise, doing wonders, right? So this 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 has become memorialized in the prayers and all of this. As a as a way of recognizing that there is no other God but Hashem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is when you go to Revelation chapter thirteen. Yeah. They worshipped the dragon because he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, "Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it?" Seal up, the, uh, seal up the seven thunders and do not write them down. But the point is, um, the, the point is, I'm sorry, I the, yeah, that's right. Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? So you see, um, again, just Hasatan trying to have a counterfeit, right? Oh, yeah. He's looking, he's looking at this song that gets memorialized in the prayers of Israel. And how we we sing, you know, Mikamoka, uh, and he wants to be like God. He wants to have the same kind of praise. There's, there's more. It's on the right hand side. Well, 
Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the end of what they say. Then no good further, who can stand against his power? Yeah, yeah so you read that. Uh, oh, you, uh -huh. oh, did you read that part? Yeah, who can fight against it? Okay, okay good. Yeah, who is like the beast yeah, who can fight against it? Right. So it's just interesting parallel. <coughs> you have you have Has Hasatan trying to take this um, this phrase that becomes um, uh, almost like another watchword of Israel, if you right, will, right. and tries to co-opt it for himself. And we see that in Revelation 13. That scares yes, me tremendously, just in life in general, that whole concept of people changing things like that, like a hoax or something. Mm -hmm. or, so easily that you could be confused. Just twisting it away. Yeah, or, or, so that, or that he deliberately parallels himself right. you know, to, to appear. Yeah. And he, he desires, we read in Revelation, to deceive yeah. The nations. Matthew 24, he desires to uh, deceive even, if possible, the elect. Yeah. It is scary. Just another example of that, too, is the portion before ours where it talks about binding these words on your mm. arm and between yeah. your eyes, and that's where the mark of the beast is. Right. Except it's on the other arm. Mm. Hey, nothing against left hand. It's on the right arm. The mark of the beast is on the, right, on the right, right hand or forehead, but the forehead is common in both. Jeremiah but doesn't count. The, but, but, but wait, but right wait if, you're, if you're looking for a, a one-off type of copy, I use this arm, he uses that arm, that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's like a mirror, right? So we're commanded to put it here, this... Oh. Counterfeit. Command is here on our arm. Jeremiah right. writes it, wraps on his right arm because it's his because he's left. Right. So. Right. But this idea of weakness versus strength. Yeah. You put it on. You, you wrap the feeling on your weak arm. Right. Recognizing as we're going to see throughout this whole see experience that God is the strength there. And the deceiver. It's all about man. It's all about strength. man and his strength and you know who it's the strength of the right hand. Right. As we were talking before uh, before Shaka Reed talking about this song. Uh, Rashi does a commentary on Song of Songs, uh, Song of Solomon, and he says that in Rashi's commentary, and actually it works pretty good too. When you read Song of so Solomon or Song of Songs, you know the bridegroom says something, and in response, the bride says something back. Right. And and uh, here, what we read is we hear the the song of the bridegroom or the bride praising God, and we don't hear the other side. And that's what's really wonderful about Song of Songs is we heard the other side, right. and where 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 God says, and we say this in our prayers as well, where God says, where we say, who is like unto you, Hashem, God's response is, who is like Israel? One nation. You know, so, so his, his, our, our love, our love is, is first a response actually to his display of love. So he shows his love for us. We may not hear it in those words, but one day we will. And when you get to Revelation, when you get to chapter 19 in the marriage supper of the Lamb, you see the both sides. You go, whoa, you know, we who knew that who knew that this 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 beloved would be so beloved? Amen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amen. <coughs> yes, sir. He was uh, it was a false bid. You're auctioning, yeah, auction. Auction, false auction. All right. <sighs> Why is it the sea of reeds? Well, is it, it reads, the Red Sea, is Red sea Reed Sea, you know. Um, there's a, actually, there's a reason why it's called the Red Sea. Well, there's another, the last verse in chapter 15, 
which just kind of seems to just kind of be also out of place a little bit. They arrived at Aileen, um, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms that encamped there by the water. Uh, and of course, actually, the par two paragraphs above at Mara is actually very significant as well. But the uh, Elim with the 12 springs of water and the 78 pounds, there's a lot of, a lot of Israel know, different ideas Israel about what, what that represents. To me, the, the one that makes the most sense to me is the 12 springs of water represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and uh, we know that a date palm from other other places in scripture, a, a palm tree is likened to a zadik, a righteous man, uh, particularly a date palm because it brings forth fruit. So you have these 12 springs of water, if they represent the nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, they are nourishing the date, the, this date palm that is symbolic of a, of a righteous man. But there's 70 of them, and 70... Uh, is an allusion to the 70 nations of the world. So it's as if the 12 tribes of Israel, right, and what they represent and who they represent and the truth that they've been given, the oracles of God, etc., nourish the Zadi king of, among the nations, mm -hmm. right? The Direct righteous the among the Gentiles. Yeah. We, uh, we did a, a big long study about righteous men being likened to trees and how Moses, after he hears about all the fruit and you know, the trees that obviously are growing there, he asked them if there's any trees. You know, sages pick up on that and say, hey, you know, this is an allusion to Job, the righteous man. And the righteous man is like a tree. We see that in Psalm 1. Isn't it interesting if you take the righteous man, that would be an awesome tree. He is an awesome tree. Verse 25 of 15, he cried out to Adonai, and Adonai showed him a tree. He threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There's, you could just preach on that for hours about the influence and effect of the righteous man amongst the crooked and perverse, or I would say bitter Just, culture. Yes, ma'am? I can't find it, but as far as the 70, I was just thinking back, weren't there 70 people that went into Egypt when they relocated? Good, I liked it. Um, um, you're exactly right. 69 plus one, right? Um, 70 souls went down. Yeah, um, and this and the sages say in, in one of the uh, portions coming up when we're at the base of the mountain, and he gives out the Torah to us that you know the tongues of fire go out and rep, you know, 70 nations, the 70 languages known to man, representing us, uh, get to hear it as well. It's a, uh, it's a common theme, and it has, uh, it has some great application. But yeah, 70 went in, 70 come out. I like that. That's cool. Okay. The, uh, this manna deal, bread from heaven. What do you got? Bread. Hmm? Was it bread? Was it bread? Was it bread? What, what is, is it? it? It's funny. They're such, they're such babies about it. They didn't know what it was, so they said, it's food! Exactly. I don't know if it is, but let's try it. Right before we get to the man part, right, right when they start complaining about the food, yes. I noticed the date, I didn't really know the Hebrew calendar, so I had to look it up, but the date, it's a month after they left. Right. 
Mm-hmm. If they are in such a hurry and they can only bring matzah, how much food did they really have? Mm-hmm. Well, but but what happens on what happens thirty days after Passover? So what's interesting is the manna begins falling on what later becomes the time that we celebrate. We would celebrate if you need to the second Passover. The second, the second Passover. Uh, uh, for those so who between for Yosef and for Nachtimon. I'm going to get quail the evening of, which is kind of an allusion to that second Passover, where you had lamb, and then the next day you eat unleavened bread, and now you've got manna. Mm-hmm. So, um, did you notice that uh, they're told what to do with the matter? Oh, first, you've got the disobedience, right? Just get enough for a day. Don't try and keep it overnight. What do they do? I think God even says He gives it to test them. Yeah. And they definitely failed it. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it but it makes perfect logical sense. I mean, in fact, it's 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 conservative. You know, it's like we well, save up. Come on. Well, if you, I mean, to Brock's point, you've already gotten hungry. You've already run out. It's natural to want to store, store some up. Yeah. And it's, it's what we do that demonstrates our faith. If you really believe, it affects what you do. So if you really believe what God said, then you wouldn't store it up because you'd know that he'd provide the next day. You, then you. I was just going to mention that, um, you know, we were talking about how God puts people in places to, just to show his might, mm-hmm. like how he worked with Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And if, if people hadn't saved it, we wouldn't have known about the worms and how it got eaten. And it wouldn't be as powerful when it was saved on Shabbat the next Good. time, you know, like being Good. able to see what happens mm-hmm. to it. It like makes it so much more powerful and what a more miracle on, on Shabbat when they do save it and there's no worms. Like, if they didn't know what had happened, that wouldn't have been that present. Exactly. Right? I wonder if it really would have done that in the middle of the week then, you know? See, I, My I'm, sin was used for God. I'm convinced. <laughs> I'm convinced. <laughs> the worms are not the big deal. The sin is. I don't know Somebody why opens it up again. In the next tent. <laughs> <laughs> Bam! You didn't try to say something, did you? Right. Man, that's not stink. It stink as sounds like yeah. women on the way to the tomb. That's yeah, what I was thinking. It comes out of your stomach. That's right. Yes, sir. So, I got so what, we, what we see is that this this manna from heaven is perishable. Right? It's corruptible. When God chooses. Except, at the end of the chapter, Moses tells Aaron, go get an yeah. omer of this put it in a jar, <laughs> stick it in the ark. And it's still there. <laughs> so, manna is perishable and corruptible, except for this unique jar of manna that is incorruptible, right? And Yeshua kind of kind of harkens back to this in John 6 when he says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven, right? Referring back to the manna. But of course, he's the incorruptible oh, that's manna. Right. That's right. So there's kind of a unique picture there. That's cool. And, uh, he, he says later, Moses gave me bread. Right. I, I got some bread. I am that bread. Just a quick point on the manna. Yes. Because, because it is an illusion 
to Messiah. But I was just thinking on a very basic level, it's so cool that the, that the bread that comes down from heaven, the bread actually keeps the Torah in that it doesn't, it doesn't let you break uh, the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Like, um, mm. oh, like it's actually like built into the bread of the Sabbath keeper. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's very good. That's cool. I never thought about that. It's like a fork cool. that just disappears in your plate. I mean, it won't let you eat. That's right. That's right. That's you right. Can't. Go ahead. That's right. I was just thinking about this versus all of the the grain and the wheat that Joseph was told to actually store up. Yes. And that it was preserved. And, and it's just it's interesting to, to think about the difference there because that grain was really just earthly sustenance and, and it was it made sense because he did God actually told him to store it up but yeah just because of what this was supposed to mean it was very it, it just was part of the command not to save any of it which just goes against what you would naturally do it was like well we've seen this before we got to store it up because who knows when we'll get it again exactly well, or there might be a famine teaching. coming but it's, it's teaching lots of things it's, but the big lesson is teaching is every day you have to get up and trust God for that day's provision. That, in other words, we can't. Um, this teaches, on one level, against hoarding what would what what we would refer to as wealth today, right? People who are hoarding wealth. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that wealth is bad. I mean, I'm, don't, don't, or that savings is bad. Or, no, I mean, there's it's prudent at some level, right? but the point is. The point is that if you are hoarding because you are either fearful and or greedy, that's not trusting God. That's exactly right? right. This is teaching them every day we have to get up and we have to trust God for that day's provision, period. I agree with that. And at the same time, what I see in it is we have to trust God and we have to work for it. That's right. We have to get out there every single day Scrape and work for it. It doesn't seem like it was little cakes fried in honey sitting there. It's, it's like very frost. fine like frost. It's almost like a flower. Whatever you're going to bake, whatever you're going to boil, do it It doesn't sound easy to gather, no. is my point. And, so, and then you got to do something with it. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's not like bread. You, you get to sit there <laughs> and do it and wait for God to provide. <laughs> God's provision comes in a way that we probably don't like so much. I mean, sure, it's food. But it's, it's not prepared food that comes into your tent by itself, and now you get to eat it. Exactly. It's, it's food. You have to go out there, and you have yeah. to work every single yeah. day. It's a thing it says that it, it melts in the hot sun. Yes. So if you were not the uh, you know, early morning <laughs> That's guy. That's right. You know, it's like the, uh, you know, the... Um, Slept late. It's a fast day. Wait a minute. What happened to second breakfast? Eleven's <laughs> <laughs> is like yeah. that was a late night. Oh God! <laughs> this morning is like oh, oh. well, exactly. It goes sort of without saying, but apparently the manna you would collect it in the morning, and that would be all three meals. Yeah. Right. Well, it is three meals. Eat well, meals. Man well, in the morning. Or one meal. One more. One meal, and then you're ready well, we're, for quail. We're going to get into three meals uh, a little later on in the, in the portion. Because you don't think they were still eating quail every day? Sure. They ate quail for 30 days. 
Every day. Yeah, but I mean, oh, that was the thing where you give me, I'll give me. That was one where it's like, give me, I'll give me. Yeah, out their mm -hmm. nose. Okay, so did you notice? Quail wings. <laughs> did you notice? Oh, that, uh, the hot side. Uh, uh, Right, those cooked in the hot sauce. There you go. <laughs> Did you see the anachronism? Where are we supposed to put the uh, the Jerome out? In the Ark of the Covenant. That's where it still is. When the Temple Institute brings it out. We don't have a tabernacle yet. We don't have an Ark of the Covenant yet. Wait, does he say the word? Yeah. Well, Aaron says, it says Aaron put it with the Ark. And there's no Ark. There is an Ark. Not yet. No. Well, he wasn't writing well, you know, uh, in, the, in the When they wrote this, it wasn't in the Ark. Is, yeah, at this point in history, mm -hmm. there is no Ark built yet. Who wrote this? Moshe. When does he write it? After there's an Ark. At the end, when there's an Ark. So he puts everything about the manna stuff, including the fact it goes into New York, all in the same spot. Makes sense. And we need to remember that as we're reading, sometimes things are not chronological. Mm -hmm. Now, that's Rashi. <coughs> so, so if there was an ark, yes, then where did the manna come from? Because they built the ark later, right? Yeah. But there were eighty manna every day. So it, it wasn't it wasn't at this point in time that he put it in the ark, but he was told to put it in. But now, to Greg's point earlier, that manna, and to Pete's point, and actually to everybody's point. The manna teaches us about Messiah. <laughs> what else was in the ark? The budded yeah, staff. The budded staff. And the the tablets. And the tablets. tablets. So we have life from a dead stick. Okay? Does that te teach you about Messiah? Not to you. How about the word of God, the very Torah itself? Does that teach you about Messiah? These three things teach us about Messiah. It's okay. And if, if we look... Uh, <laughs> if uh, if you've got your apostolic writings with you, <laughs> if you look in Hebrews, please, chapter 9, verses, uh, I think, 3 and 4, or 4 and 5, you'll find that the writer of Hebrews talks about the three things that are in the Ark of the Covenant that hasn't been built yet at this point in our walk through the Torah, and he makes a curious statement about it. What does he say about the three things? We can't talk about this right now. In detail. That, in detail. That is a very nice reference about things of Messiah. Isn't it true, though? I, I thought in my Bible reading, I was just reading in like a Kings or Samuel or something like that. Uh, I think it's like when they move the ark, David moves the ark. It, I think it's like a verse that specifically says, and the only thing in the ark was that I read. And I remember reading it thinking, how is that the only thing in the ark? What happened to the other two things? Did they get lost? Did somebody steal them? Because it seems like, you know. <coughs> Maybe when they went down into war, they're really hungry. Right, specifically, it seems like God goes specifically out of his way to say, this is the only thing in there. We don't need to know what's in there. If he hadn't said anything, we would have assumed that there were those right. things because we know. Maybe when they brought it to war, because they did that at times, yeah, no, right? Yeah. Maybe when they brought it to war, they took the jar out and the stick. Don't know. But that's a good point. When we get to that, we'll, we'll deal with that. Yes, sir. Um, so just a couple comments. There is a Rashi that says they did have an ark at this time. Whatever. So, um, but I think there's also an understanding that from another passage 
where I think it may be actually when it goes through the construction of the, the tabernacle or not, that the, the jar of manna and the rod <coughs> were placed with the ark in the, in the Holy of Holies. In other words, not necessarily in it, in it but they were placed with it so before the alongside yeah. it, if you will, in the Holy of Holies. Gotcha. That's a, that, mm. that's Hebrews 9, though, says it's inside because he goes yeah. over the whole gold inside and out. I don't know if Joshua just said this because I had zoned out just briefly, but um, <laughs> He's the, honest. the manna melts, right? And But then they are able to cook it or boil it, which is total paradox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's obviously they're not heat thing. Maybe a UV thing, but not a heat thing. Maybe, that's right. Maybe once, maybe once you touch it, you can cook it. But if you don't touch it, it melts. See, I saw for the first time we're looking for stuff we've never seen before, and it would melt. Now I'm thinking, all right, now wait. We think because he said it's like frost, and it melts away. Maybe it melts and leaves a goo spot. And stinks. I don't know. Anyway. Mm-hmm. I think I just like my point. Well, it had to disappear somehow, or it would all be stinky the next day. Or a exactly. juice spot like a caramel that you could scrape up. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, something you could grab up. You know, so wasn't it like the other paradox that if you gathered more than you were supposed to, that you would, you would only have enough for that day, or something like that. Well, I think it, no matter how much you ate, you were only going to be full and not over full or something right, like that. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, you, so you did all that. <laughs> yeah, whether he was a big guy or a little guy. Yeah. yeah. You well, know. it's sort of like Dad only set up a certain amount of chairs today and only that many people showed up. <laughs> so really, if you set them all up, the crowd would be huge. <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> hey, I set up enough to have a minion. We had a minion. Praise God. It's a good point, son. Okay, so we move past that. We've got uh, verse 22 of chapter 16, please. It happened on the sixth day that they gathered a double portion of food, two omers for each, and all the princes of the assembly came and told Moses. He said to them, This is what Adonai had spoken. Tomorrow is a rest day, a holy Sabbath to Adonai. Bake what you wish to bake. Cook what you wish to cook, and whatever's left over, put away for yourselves as a safekeeping until the morning. They put it away until morning, as Moses had commanded. It did not stink, and there was no infestation in it. Pretty cool. There was an oh yeah moment here because they came to him and said, "Oh, we have these, we have extra," and he's like, "Oh, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah." That's what you're supposed to do. Verse 25. Moses said, "Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath for Adonai." Today you shall not find it in the field. Six days shall you gather it, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. On it there will be none. It happened on the seventh day that some morons went out to gather, and they did not find any. Sorry, I think I added that. Um, Verse 25. I like in verse 20, it says, Notwithstanding. Yeah. (laughs) Some guys still went out. So verse 25. Did you notice, if you look, even in English, Today is there three times. Hayom, the day. And this verse is why. Hayom, the day. By the sages is always, or almost always, a reference to Shabbat. And if, if you look, um, 
And Psalm 95 does the same kind of thing. Um, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 uses the same exactly right. terminology today. 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 And as long as, it's today. as long as it's today, it's like the Sabbath. And yet there remains a Sabbath rest. So today, Hayom. So it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, they just big for the sages here. Um, this is also, by the way, where we get the uh, tradition that you're supposed to have three meals on the Sabbath. Today, today, today. When are you going to eat that manna? Today, today, today. Three meals. I like that. Manna three ways. Yeah. We also, <laughs> we also manna bagels. Wait on wine. We also derive from here and other places, but from here, why we don't cook on Shabbat. Mm -hmm. Great segue. That was my next point. Go. Mm -hmm. Well, because he, he said. He specifically goes through it, right? Right. He said. He, on Friday, he says, bake what you want to bake, cook what you want to cook, and whatever's left over, put it away for yourselves as a safekeeping until morning, till, until, till the next day's Sabbath, right? Um, and then he says, eat that, eat, eat it on the Sabbath. So we derive from this that we don't cook on the Sabbath. Exactly. Um, we, you know, we prepare. We cook extra food on Friday. Whether you're, whether you're a microwave family or not, uh, Alan is, uh, is good to remind us that we're not going to change things from raw to cooked today. <coughs> if it's cooked, we can reheat it. If it's cooked, we can keep it warm. But we can't take the raw stuff and cook it and make it cooked. It's the idea of a blech. You know, you just blech. put the stuff on there and let it... <laughs> and cook and get hard. And right. <laughs> there is no sticking or infestation. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the gathering thing. Uh, Joshua and I were talking earlier this week that it says they did so and gathered whoever took more and whoever took less. They measured and whoever took more had nothing extra, whoever took less had not lacking. That it was almost like this miraculous gathering. You know, they gather and gather and gather and they measure and everybody's got the perfect amount. After a while, you're thinking. I'm just taking a little. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, I'm no dummy. And so, you know, it's an omer per person and whatever. It's so great. And then they they do that on Friday. And that's, in my mind, that's why the Prince of Pentecost had to come tell Moses because everybody has double what they normally have. But it's always been this miraculous thing. Yeah. You know, we always each have an omer. And then they measure it this time. It's like, well, I, Whoa, I have two omers. And so they all come tell right. Moses, they all mm -hmm. have two. <laughs> what do we do with those? Oh, yeah. It's going to stink. It's going to stink. <laughs> and I think that's why they had to, had to do that because um, it's almost like they didn't they didn't know. So your take on this is that God blessed them without them even knowing it, yes. providing them with sufficient for double without them even realizing it. Right. And then made clear. It says I've they provided have a double portion provision. of food. And then the princess came and told Moses. And it's almost like the princess thought they did something wrong, but it's like they didn't know that they had gotten right, double. Right. And oh my goodness, now it's double. So now what do we do? So well, they go ask Moses. I, I think it was back to Greg or Gregory's point. Can you imagine being one of the princes? Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. Shmuel in the next ten, twice, been trying to keep this overnight. You want me to keep it overnight now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I can do that. That's that's got to be a tough deal. Um, or or Hakaim makes an interesting point. 
Uh, or Hachaim. Hachaim. Okay. Or, anyway, makes an interesting point. He says, uh, and actually the Chumash notes this, that um, on Friday when they're gathering and they get that double portion, they haven't been informed yet. Moshe probably knows, but the people haven't been informed yet that there's this thing called Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, um, we, we think that maybe some of the ancestors may have kept some of the things before the Torah was given, but it hasn't been given as a full-out commandment to the people of Israel yet. Right. So, they're, so they're just gathering this portion. They've got a double portion. And they're going, we've got a double portion. What's the deal with this? Yeah. And then after that, Moses then exactly. tells them, hey, we've got Shabbat coming. So the cool thing about that is if Moshe had told them before they gathered that, oh, hey, all right, tomorrow you're going to get a double portion. It's going to be a Shabbat coming. Then we got the double portion. They're like, oh, cool, okay, or right, whatever. They get it first, they're going, whoa, what's this? It's a miracle, and their minds are kind of boggled. And then they find out, oh, it's because we have Shabbat. So they see the purpose, and it's much more. I love it, I love it. So it's the whole zonad on that couch, right? They both zonad. I think that this issue of the provision being double is so cool because I think that it speaks again to this idea of trusting in God. Earlier we talked about what do you do when you're standing at the Red Sea, and am I supposed to walk, am I supposed to fight? And it's like... I think sometimes, especially as a, as a head of a household now, there's an enormous amount of pressure to provide for your family. Enormous amount of pressure well, to so work hard <laughs> and try to, and you're thinking, not just right now, okay, 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 I think, um, so we're going to have to have enough money to pay for a house X number of months or years from now, and how much money do you need to pay children? Children's just college. having children, much less like providing for them afterwards, and every day like, for over 20 <laughs> years. I know, it's like all of this stuff that you're having to like, teach them to fast, it's a good, it's a good thing. <laughs> save a lot of money over Joshua, years. each child, $300,000. That's right. So if you look That's about like the well, amount like, of... If you clothe them. <laughs> 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 but uh, <laughs> um, the bathrobe colony is being started by Peter. But the, uh, the idea, though, I'm thinking about this concept is there's so much pressure on these guys. And, I, and, I, and we talked about earlier about the amount of work that they did. I kind of imagine like the guys probably went out to gather, and then we went, stayed at home and they baked it. You know, the guys went out because what else are the guys doing all day, right? So the guys are probably the ones going to scraping this stuff off the rock and they're bringing it back, and the, the the wives are making the feud out of it. And I'm looking at them, it, but either way. There's this amazing amount of faith to say, I'm not going to get anything tomorrow. But that actual, that same lesson is exactly what we do today. Because you and me and you and you and you know, every man in this room knows that six days of the week we're going to work and that seventh day I'm not. I'm not going to use it to work on my own business. I'm not going to use it to go and you know, shoot out resumes to try and get another job. I'm not going to work overtime on Shabbat. I may have to turn jobs down that require me to work on Shabbat. I mean, the amount of faith it takes, and yet somehow, God not only provides for us, he meets all of our needs in abundance. And I think you look at the people of Israel, you're talking about Jews who have for centuries have kept one day, they don't work at all, puts them at a huge disadvantage, and they're some of the wealthiest people to have ever lived. That's exactly right. Praise God. Mm-hmm. And he always meets that day and thinks so. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a good segue into what I want to kind of take off on this and um, something that Mel and I talked about this week because I try to put a lot of things in today's perspective right. and I look at this and here's uh, here's God who gave them a Sabbath day's rest and obviously the last two years trying to be more Torah obedient mm-hmm. in our lives. Right. I'm starting to see a lot of things but it's like this reminds me of people today and especially Christians you know, it's almost like nothing satisfies them. And if they, and God says here, how long will you refuse to obey my commandments? And so I think 
you know, and we even fell into this before, but I see Christians today that I go to church, I observe the Sabbath, but yet then the next day they're still looking, and the next day they're still looking, and the next day they're still looking. Whether, but if they would observe God's command to honor and obey the true Sabbath, they may not have that yearning That's right. for, to look more. That's right. and, and I mean, go back in earlier in the in the portion where God said, um, I think He said, if you do not obey my commands, and my decrees, I will bring sickness on you, or disease. Or, yeah. Yeah. Will, if you do. I won't give you the diseases that I put on you. Right, and yeah. I almost think of the world today as like, Bunch of I mean, in a in a jury right theological way of <laughs> you know, there's a lot of sickness and a lot of stuff going day because we don't observe God's exactly. commandments and His decrees. So that's, that's right. anyway, I kind of just looked at this a little bit different, different of that. But I see that today. That that's, and you and I have talked about this. I, I think that's why a lot of Christians today see peaks and valleys in their lives, and even pastors say. Hey, if you're going through that valley, come on down and rededicate your life. And someone's like, why? Right. If you followed what God told us to do... Right. I'm just going to end up with the same peaks and valleys that exactly, I've done. Right. Exactly. Um, it, it's interesting here. when you're... Uh, you notice... I, I notice it a lot now. Because um, all my clients know I keep the Sabbath. They all know. Some agree, some don't agree, some don't care, some care. Um, but when they need help, this is how they put it. Hi, Joseph. I know it's your Sabbath, but dot, dot, dot. So I always write back and say, it's not my Sabbath. It's God's Sabbath. I'm just keeping it. What do you need? Because if your ox isn't in a ditch, call me Monday. If it is, call me now. And I'll find someone like you who doesn't. Keep the Sabbath, <laughs> just keeps to do it his own Sabbath, and I'll have them do it for you, unless I've got to do it for you because you're obviously doing it. And that's, that's great. And that's your Sabbath. Yeah, and that's a great point because we've said Very that good. too. We've said, we were kidding around and said something like, they're not doing Sabbath. We go, oh, because it's Sabbath. They go, no, my Sabbath is Sunday. That's what, like, they're, what do you mean? Your, your Sabbath. Your Sabbath is Sunday. <laughs> you said it right. My Sabbath is Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, wow, you get your own Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> that's just like God. Wait, yeah. You're not making yourself out to be. No! <laughs> we wouldn't do that. <laughs> Just uh, what, what you both were saying, it made sense. I, I remember reading something, it was probably in Rabbi Danny Lappin's book, but it was something about America having the highest amount of hours, average-wise, a week working, yet we are the highest consumers of drugs for depression <laughs> that, out of any other country in the whole world. Wow. Yeah. Not surprising. Right. Yeah. We are I, like, dis- I like work. Don't bad mouth work. Yeah, we are dissatisfied people. <laughs> no, but people it's yeah. on the right all seven days. Right day. That's the thing is, I think that man, are we cre- we are created to work. And honestly, Six days. I'll be honest with you. There are times when yeah, you yeah. you get into Sabbath, it's sometimes you almost feel like, oh, I got this and I got this. No, no. Today we're not going to worry about that. We'll worry about it later. And sometimes it's hard. I mean, that's the thing is, I think. It, People on the outside look at it and go, oh, you get a day to do nothing. Oh, how easy is that? I, mean, I wish I had a day to do nothing. Well, you can, but the yeah. thing is, you, you had to play double on Friday, so you had to do nothing the next exactly day. So right. basically, the amount of work you do doesn't change. It's just is less time. But I think my point earlier was saying that God rewards that in a special way to meet your needs so that you're not disadvantaged. And, and oftentimes, he even chooses to exceed them so that you find yourself more blessed in less time. Amen. Mm-hmm. And, no, it, and it happened when they uh, when they took the uh, 
caravan across uh, for the gold rush. Those folks that went across and only traveled six days and rested on the seventh got there like 21 days earlier than <laughs> everybody else that went. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that happened to me. It still does. I've been observing the Sabbath for, I don't know how long, 20 years or something. And it's been so hard. And even to this day, I have to admit, it's hard. It is. I can get over it. Yeah. But the rewards are there. I feel it. I, and if I mess up somehow or another, I know that I have messed up. The other thing, similar to maybe what this man was saying, I've heard people say, any day is okay. Right. You just not even right. just the, the real one and the, the major counterfeit one. Pastor takes Monday. Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Because he works on the Sabbath. screwing me, pardon the language. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, it's so difficult. It is. I can't get over how it, it is much better now, but you know, the beginning. Oh my God. Exile. Everything is right. against. Everything's harder. Everything's hard when you're not in exile. Everything's harder when you're when you're in the diaspora. <laughs> it's not hard at all. I bet. Shabbat it comes upon you. Smooth as it gets. Yeah. Let's, let's, like, even like the manna, they don't let you not yeah. keep the Sabbath. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Everything's closed. Let's remember. Jerusalem, <laughs> you have to actually work hard to work. Yeah. Let's let's remember that our faith is intended to be practiced one in the land of Israel. And two, in community. Mm -hmm. Without either one or both, it is more difficult than it's intended to be. Mm -hmm. This should not cause us despair, but should cause us to long for the coming of Messiah or the opening of the real estate market in Jerusalem. <laughs> okay, verse 29. Hopefully both occur at the same time. That's right. <laughs> Uh, 28, Adonai said to Moses, How long will you refuse to observe my commandments and my teachings? What are those two words? Mitzvot, Mitzvot and Torah. See that Adonai has given you Shabbat. That is why he gives you on the sixth day a two-day portion of bread. Watch it. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man leave his place on the seventh day. The people rested on the seventh day. What do the sages derive from verse 29? That's not traveling journey. Sabbath. Sabbath day's journey. Outside, Sabbath day's outside journey. of your place. This outside your place. Only, your place is defined by... It is by the only mention of it in the Tanakh. However, it is alluded to in Jeremiah. It is alluded to in Ezra. In it is alluded to in Nehemiah. And it is most assuredly not only alluded to, but Luke. described Luke in Acts. great detail. In the book of Luke, what what it means what it means to stay where you are. It says no that I Yeshua and his apostles went a Sabbath day's journey. Yeah. So we know that the Master not only knew, and his his apostles not only knew, but they also maintained this going a Sabbath day's journey. How long is a Sabbath day's journey? How far can you go? The Torah is going to tell us later on. How far out from the center of the city is the grazing land for for that particular town? Outside the walls. Outside the walls. So Nineveh, Nineveh, three days. If you want to walk three days, you can walk three days. That's it. So you've, you've got this, this distance that had been defined, and the sages chose to use that as the generic Sabbath day's journey from any point. So if you were not in a walled city, if you're like in the middle of a field, the Sabbath started, this, that's your place. 2,000, whatever it is, from Come. your place. That's the deal. And you read 
of stories of the sages who are traveling and Shabbat comes and and you count your steps. That's it. And we've got stories of them making sure that they don't go too far. Now, I just wanted to make it clear just that it is there. Inside the city is not quite that way, though. No, it's not, not inside of no, There is right. no. Just as a question, the context here is going and gathering the manna. That's true. And I, I just, I'm, I'm just thinking this through. Like, do you, is it about the distance, or is it about what you would be doing when you go out of your place? The the commandment not to go out of your place, because we know it, it's we, not literal. Because we know that Yeshua the sages, walking all around the yeah, we know the sages and Yeshua and the apostles all saw it as a distance. But and and purpose here that here clearly we've got two things going, right. Um, Jeremiah, I mean, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah talk a little bit about purpose as well. You know, you're, you're not going to buy or sell here. But they actually know? say that don't go outside the city gate. Oh, there's guys out there who are going to try and sell you right. stuff. Don't go outside the city For gate. purpose. Right. But I think that they're also they're marking a distance by doing that, though. Yeah. So it's. Because in um, this case, it would seem like distance would be irrelevant because the dew is everywhere. I mean, mm -hmm. it wouldn't be like you'd have to travel very far. Except to you don't get want to gather. You don't want to gather manna in the in the camp. That's messy. I mean, it, really, seriously, you would never gather manna in the camp that's because like, people are walking on it and everything else. That's, you go out that's in the like, field where it's pristine. That's like when you got to go <clears throat> to the bathroom. Yeah, so you go outside yeah, to see. You go far enough away, and because and because. The latrine is outside the camp as well. You need to go far enough away from the camp, which is exactly why you get this derived Sabbath mm -hmm. day's journey. Okay. Far enough away from the camp in order to make sure that the field is pristine, not been walked on, not been plotted, uh, not you didn't have cattle walking on it or whatever else. If you're going to scrape stuff off the ground, you want to make sure it's clean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Snow ice cream. Snow ice cream. You definitely don't want to do it in areas where people are animals. But if, if there was... Move inside in a room somewhere. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, if there was no, uh, I mean, it's it's tractate or ravine that, that talks about two thousand cubits or about three thousand feet, um, three quarters of a mile. Yeah. If 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 it, you know, to Peter's point, it seems like wow, it's not really a command. It seems to be specifically only to these people at this time. Don't go out. Don't get manna. Stay in your place, and we're done. And evidently, that's not not only how it was taken by the sages, um, but it is interesting that Luke makes it clear in Acts chapter one, verse I think twelve, um, that they are they are going to go that Sabbath day's journey. Why would he even mention it if it had if it was <coughs> or if nobody knew it if it hadn't been an established deal? Judah has a hand. Judah, yes. It's um, what you're saying about. The bread having to be clean, like the outside, mm -hmm. the city gates and everything. You don't. It's almost like the bread of God in a way. Like you don't. It can't be. You don't want to trample on it. You, you don't want to trample on it. It can't be. Mm -hmm. Put your Bible on the top of the stack. Mm -hmm. right. Don't put things on it top of the be, Bible. It can't be um, infested, stepped on, that sort of thing. Defaced. Yes. It can't, it can't be that by the world. It has to be outside. That's what it is. Because hmm. it's totally set apart. I like it. I like it. Can't wait five, six more years. I'm not even going to have to stand up here anymore. <laughs> All right. Other comments on that? People rested on the seventh day. I just want to say to those uh, 
our community who don't aren't lucky like us and live like a five minute drive away. Yeah. I don't think that this necessarily because of the issue of being in a city on top of the fact that you're actually driving for fellowship, which is a positive commandment versus the negative commandment of staying in your place. I think that that is fine. Where we might run into an issue would be like, hey, I'm going to the beach on you know Sunday. Well, I could just leave Saturday afternoon and drive you know six miles down the highway. That I would have. Or four hours down the highway. That's what I meant. Six right. hours. Right. I, I, I there are times it's very difficult. We we watched flights leave from Tel Aviv with seats on them sure. that we could have gotten. Specifically because they were empty because people don't fly on Sabbath. Right. Uh, that we go well, we could have got that and then sit around and not get the ne- flights the whole next, mm-hmm. you know, number of days. Several because days, right. well, we kept mm-hmm. the Sabbath. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, your mileage may vary, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> chapter seventeen in the first five, uh, first seven verses, we have the whole deal with the rock. Um, I think First Roots of Zion had a really, uh, really cool video. It might actually be a part of the highest sowed class, where um, there's natural springs in the desert, and uh, if you happen to be schlepping out there as a shepherd or something like that, and you notice um, that uh, in between the cracks of some of the rocks, there's there's vegetation, green stuff growing. There must be water down in there somewhere, and. Uh, Evidently, the um, the mouths of these springs get calcified over, and if you just hit it with a big stick, you can bust away the calcification on the opening, and water will come up. And a lot of times, it may be enough to water you, your animals, and so on. Um, so it's not surprising that Moses knows where to hit the rock. It really isn't. That's not the miracle. What's the miracle? Enough people can drink it. <laughs> 600,000. Yeah, 600,000 people can drink? Yeah, 600,000. Okay, Shmuel, number, number 746. Yeah, just you know, two seconds, three seconds. Just take a sip, okay? Next. Yeah, yeah who's the last guy? Who's the no, last guy? Yeah. Drink. Yeah, that's right. Holy cow. You didn't put your mouth on the spigot, did you? <laughs> No, there was I'm enough. Like, I'm first. <laughs> that's right. To my wife, first. She's not into that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's that's a tremendous amount. And we say six hundred thousand people, what we forget? That's the men. They've, they've got animals. women. They got children and animals. Animals and thousands, <laughs> tens of thousands of gallons of water were necessary. Now, just think about it. It's it's highly unlikely, without the hand of God holding his mouth over the spigot, that the calcification could possibly be thin enough that Moses could just hit it with a stick and that much water is going to come out. Either that, or nobody got a drink for about five days while they waited for the pool to fill up. There must have been so much pressure on that that God was specifically holding back the water so that he could be glorified. Well, it reminds me that I mean, there's there's a tendency in modern times to try and explain the miracles sure. through through, sure. uh, through natural phenomenon. Like, like they do with the plagues. Well, like the, the like the clock crossing the Red Sea was not very deep, and that was the the joke is you know of course that it, the miracle isn't that that the the people walked through on dry land. The miracle was that Pharaoh's and his chariots all drowned, drowned in three inches, inches of water. water. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. So anyway. This is, this is a big deal. And as, as Greg brought up earlier, um, Paul uh, is actually quoting from the Melchizedek. No, he's not quoting from the Melchizedek, but he's, he's referring to the same thing 
that uh, that the sages brought out, and that is that it appears that this rock, which gave them water, as they're going around for 40 years, the same rock is referred to. They're drinking for 40 years. And as the sages say, and as the story goes, the, the rock followed them. The rock actually, you know, they, they go seven miles down the road. Isn't that the same rock? <laughs> is he taking us in circles? Same rock. So that was, that was the, the, the drash uh, in the Mechuta. Um, this water-giving rock miraculously accompanied the children of Israel throughout their wanderings in the desert. Well, Paul uses that same metaphor in what Greg gave us out of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, that that, that rock is Messiah. And he says, Messiah went with them. As the sages have said, that Messiah is always with his people when they're in exile. So, Well, I think, you know, the language here in verse 6, when God is speaking to Moses, he says, Behold... I shall stand before you by the rock. So it's very clear that Hashem is there. Uh, and I was just starting to look at the, at the Hebrew here because um, uh, before Al Al Hazur. So Upon all, all the, the Hebrew word all can also be translated as upon the rock. In other words, you could have translated this: "Behold, I shall stand upon the rock in Horeb." So God is saying, "I am, I am there, and I am, I am either on the rock, I'm standing next to the rock, I'm in the rock, something." Right? Yeah. He is connecting himself with this rock, and of course, Shaul you know, tells us later that the rock. Is Messiah. So, um, and. No matter how you look at it, God's pretty close to the rock. And when he strikes the rock, the rock brings forth water and delivers the people, brings deliverance, right? Without water in the desert, you're dead, yeah. right? So there's salvation, as it were, through the rock. Through the. Only after the rock has been struck. After the rock has been struck. The word struck is the same word in the Hebrew that's used in Isaiah 53. He was smitten. So he smote. He smote. He did get smoked. He smote the rock, and the rock brought forth living water. And of course, all of these pictures clearly point to. Uh, Messiah. Messiah said, I am the source of living water, right? Um, and you know, you can go back to Genesis and the wells and you know it's all kind of it's all interconnected. Yeah, it was it was it was it was sort of shaky, you know, giving you the water deal here. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the interesting thing is well, Paul uses this illusion and he used it in very much the same way as the Kilta. The Kilta yeah. is written as a as a it's not it's not a it's not a. It's not a. It's a. It's a midrash, but it's not a midrash to teach some theological truth. The Mechilta is a commentary, a midrash on Exodus to teach how to live. It's halakhic. 
And Paul does exactly the same thing. And our danger when we read the things that Paul writes similar to this, that and similar to this, is that we create theological constructs to live to to somehow promote or to adhere to mm-hmm. without making any change in our life. And Paul uses this to make a change in people's lives and a recognition of who Messiah is, which is exactly the same reason why the Mechilda did it. Right. Exactly. And it is to me it's it's exciting to know that I get it. I'm, I'm reading Paul, and I know from history that the sages were thinking along the same lines. So I've actually got Jewish sages after Paul who are giving the Second same drawings that he's doing. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the rock is the you know, symbol of the Lord. You went back there, and it had to be smoked first. What is that? How does that? What does that mean? I mean, well, what, how would we put that out? What, what if I do well, to smoke the rock? Is that ridiculous? Well, well, no. I, I think, I think, because you have to actually juxtapose this incident with Moses and the rock with the second incident of Moses and the rock, which is in Numbers chapter twenty-one. Okay, so um, what I believe, what I believe, this is is teaching, right? Because we know that Torah is always pointing us to Messiah, right? So, and we know, especially all through the Psalms, right, lead me to the rock, the rock of my salvation, right? You are my rock, my refuge. You know, so there's this imagery that's all harkening back to this incident with the rock, right? In the second place where Moses um, and the rock appear again, again, it's Numbers chapter 21, similar story. They're still in the desert. Now we're now kind of at the end of the 40 years as opposed to the beginning of the 40 years here. Uh, we've run out of water, we're moaning, we're belly aching, we're complaining. Moses gets a little upset. God says, okay, Moses, um, go speak to the rock. God tells him to speak to it. Don't smite it. Don't hit it. Speak to it. But Moses, because he's kind of irritated and frustrated with the people, he's a little upset, in his anger, he smites the rock twice. Uh, in that incident, when you go read it, the water came, still came out. The people still were delivered, as it were. They still were um, uh, they still were sustained by the living water. But but that incident cost Moses his um, ability to actually go into the promised land, right? And so you see, you have to stop and ask yourself, well, wait a minute. Here's Moses, the greatest prophet that ever lived, the most humblest man, talked face to face with God, yada yada yada. Why would this one incident where he got a little upset, you know, he's, he's human after all, why would this one thing keep him from entering the promise, the promised land? So there's a, there's something significant with it, right? But when you when you when you understand that, that what it's teaching here, not saying that Messiah was literally a rock, what it's what it's trying to convey is that is that um, is that Messiah is this is the one that brings deliverance, brings salvation. And because we have one incident, we have two incidents where Moses interacts with this rock, I, I believe, uh, my current view is that that's a picture of a first coming and a second coming. Okay, The first coming, the rock, God said, smite the rock. Hit the rock. Right? But the second time, God said, don't smite it speak to it, right? Which is, if you if you then look at the parallel, right? It's all a metaphor. If you look at the parallel, 
Messiah, we know, his purpose when he came the first time, was he was to be smitten, he was to be stricken, he was to lay down his life uh, uh, to, to bring deliverance to the people. But we also know the second time he comes, He's not going to be smitten again, right? He's smiting. He's smiting. He's smiting. more. Everybody else is going to address him with respect, or it'll be a bad day for them, right? So what you really have is you have a picture here of the Messiah who brings deliverance, who who shows up on the scene uh, specifically in two cases, and the first time he's to be smitten, the second time he's not, and if you try to smite the Messiah the second time, you do not enter the promise. Uh, you do not, you forfeit your ability to enter into the promise, right? That's kind of the metaphor that's being, that, that's being taught here. Um, and it's interesting because the word for rock here is zur, which is the most common form. The word for rock in the Numbers 21 incident is the word selah, which is another form. And in the Psalms, when you go through like Psalm 118, it'll say, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll use, it'll say, uh, lead me to the rock, Zor. Um, you are my refuge and my rock, Selah. In the same verse, it'll use these two words for rock, you know, um, and they all kind of harken back to these two stories. Outstanding. Did you do a great job? I firmly believe that everybody in this room should be able to tell that story. Maybe not the way he tells it, maybe not as quick or as short or whatever, but you should know that story. These allusions to Messiah are there that we may see him. He is on every page of the Tanakh, and we should be able to do that. The short answer is, he was smitten for me. Let's pray. Good Father, we thank you for this day, for the, the Sabbath of song, Shabbat Shirah. We thank you, Father, for the, uh, the great care which your people have taken to preserve your word, that we might study it like this, that we can see these pictures of Messiah, these allusions to his work on our behalf. We thank you that you provided salvation for us, and I pray that we would all demonstrate the faith we have in that finished work as each day goes by. In the end that your son would soon come and reign on this earth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, folks. Good Sabbath.